Our passage this morning is from the first uh, chapter of James, verses 1 to 4 and verse 12. So let us read together. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And down to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life, and the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let us pray. Father God, we know that your word is powerful, that um, it separates bone from marrow. It discerns the intents and the wishes and desires of the heart. So Father, we pray for the speaker that you would help me to communicate your truth this morning, for the listener that you would take these truths and apply them to the week ahead. Father, we thank you that your word is powerful and we can rely on it. Thank you for this time, Father, and we ask all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Trying to make, minimize the feedback here. They got a new harness here for these ears of mine, but somehow it's still feeding back, so forgive me if you get feedback. We've had a very difficult few months at Spring Meadows. As many of you know, we've had several health issues. We've had uh, one of our dear members, Barbara, break her hip. Thankfully, she's on the mend right now. We've had job losses, other unexpected hospitalizations. We've had um, people that have stressed with their uh, rent needs. We, um, of course, have been dealt with the, the long stress of the COVID situation, and, and we pray for God's mercy that that would be resolved soon. And then this Thursday, Terry and I were uh, visiting with um, Paul and uh, Isabel DiMaggio, who celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary this week. And it was a heartbreak to me. It was a joy to be there with them, but it was a heartbreak because as we entered their apartment, they had a big screen television on the wall, and I saw the notice, which at that time was stating that 10 Marines had been killed at, uh, at um, Kabul. Heartache upon heartache. So when we're in the middle of these things, we cry out to God for mercy. We try to understand how it all fits together, why it is happening. And this passage this morning in James provides us an answer to some of these questions. In Genesis 3, we learn that after the fall, trouble enters in right away. You know, um, God makes clear that childbirth will be uh, undergone through pain. The ground will only produce thorns and thistles. There'll be labor in order to be able to bring the fruit of the earth up. And although Christ is promised, and ultimately we know he's victorious, we know that Satan will be a hindrance throughout history in many, many ways. Our dear former elder emeritus, Dean Haywood, used to call this the contrariness of things. Things just don't work the way they're supposed to. The everyday world frequently um, uh, works against, it seems, in small and frustrating ways, and sometimes in very heartbreaking ways. As we look at this passage in James this morning, we'll see that it's an encouragement to bear up under trials, and enduring through them leads to maturity. R.C. Sproul in his commentary in James stated that to count it all joy is a call to understand suffering from the vantage point of God's sovereignty. Trials can be understood as pure joy only when there is knowledge that they are designed by God for a purpose. They are tests of faith given in order to develop perseverance. In turn, perseverance produces mature Christian character. Or as a recent post, which I was thankful my brother, Elder Guy Williams, posted yesterday from Tim Keller, we can rest in a knowing God has a purpose for our trials. 
They were not without purpose. Now, earlier this year, I ended up having a brief hospitalization, and at that time, I was preparing to teach Sunday school in the book of James, the five chapters of James. So I had some of my preparation already done for, for this, and I was thankful for that. James is believed by many scholars to be one of the earliest books, of, if not the earliest book of the New Testament. It's, it's also interesting that in the Old Testament, Job is considered to be the earliest of the Old Testament writings. Both of these books deal with the problem of the faithful during periods of great suffering. Now, you know, when we write a letter today, we, we write the letter and then we sign off, you know, sincerely Ed Kelly or sincerely Terry Kelly. But in the Greco-Roman world, they began the letter with the name of the person that was writing the letter. And we see that here as the letter begins. It says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word bondservant is doulos, which can either be translated servant or slave. The questioner is, as I went through various commentaries, about eight different commentaries on James, and one of the questions that all the writers bring up is, which James is this? Well, church history believes that it's the half-brother of Jesus, uh, James, and we will we'll talk about the other James um, that, that are indicated. We know that it, can, it cannot be James, the brother of the Apostle John, because at Acts 12 we see that Herod, in a rage against the church, had murdered James. And uh, there's a father mentioned once in the uh, New Testament called, who's named James. Then he's the father of Judas, not Iscariot, and that's the last thing we hear about him. So the way to biblical scholarship points to the half-brother of Jesus, who the Gospels point out did not initially believe in Jesus' ministry. We see in uh, Mark chapter 3 where uh, Mary and his brothers are coming because they think that Jesus is out of his mind. So what happens? You know, how is it that by Acts 15 we see that this same James is a leader in the Jerusalem church? Well, we find this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, For what I perceived I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at that time. Most who are living, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me, meaning Paul, as to one abnormally born. So, James had met the resurrected Christ. He saw his half-brother for who he truly was, his savior. It's also interesting that James does not feel it necessary in a letter to point out that he's Jesus' half-brother, but refers to him as a servant. Uh, Extra-biblical sources refer to James as being a very wise leader of the church. He's known as James the Just. And other extra-biblical writings talk about him as camel-kneed James, meaning that he was such a faithful man of prayer, he was on his knees all the time, and uh, that was reflected in, in uh, his uh, hard knees. Paul refers to James as an apostle at Galatians 1.19. Paul says, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And then finally, the historian Josephus notes that this James, Jesus' half-brother, was stoned to death for refusing to recant his faith in 62 AD. So that gives us a window for knowing that the, this letter of James is either from the late 40s to the early uh, 60, 60s um, in the year, the year of Christ. Um, it reflects greatly Hebrew wisdom literature. You know, it's, it's filled with a lot of very short and pointed statements about how to live life. Uh, and... Uh, the wisdom in dealing with the trials of life. Uh, as I was studying through the book of James, uh, one of the other issues that comes through is some skepticism about the book early on in the church and then later during the Reformation. 
In the early years, uh, you don't see the first two centuries, there's no references. It isn't until by the third century that there's a reference to the book of James. There's actually some parts of James that are quoted directly in a, a non-canonical book called The Shepherd of Hermas and also in the letter of 1 Clement. Clement's successor, Origen, does cite James by name, and in the fourth century, the church father Eusebius quotes James and treats his book as scripture. Uh, Eusebius also noted that Christians had referred to James' writing as a disputed book or anti-legomenia, writings that are disputed. The fifth century has a Syriac translation which includes the book of James, and then Jerome, and finally in the, the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible accepts James as part of the canon, and it's identified as being written by the brother of the Lord. So there's a quiet period then between the fourth century and then the Reformation in the 1500s. Um, Luther very kind of tongue-in-cheekly refers to it as a right straw epistle. He, he questioned whether it was a canonical book. And the problem lies around, and we don't have time this morning to go into, but in chapter 2, James states, show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Um, so the, the question that is raised in Luther's life is, is this in, in, in direct opposition to what Paul was teaching, that faith is by Christ alone? And most Bible scholars believe today there's really no conflict. What, 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 what Paul is talking about is salvation through Christ, our justification by faith. And what James is pointing to is if you are a believer, there should be fruit, fruit in that belief. You know, that your life should reflect. Uh, if you are looking for a commentary, you'd like to read more on uh, the two commentaries I really enjoyed. was to Dr. Donald Mortier and Dr. Douglas Move. And I have them in my library, so if you'd like to borrow them, please let me know. The letter of James touches on a broad range of topics, often in, as I explained, short kind of uh, summarized statements. The testing of our faith, the treatment of the poor versus the wealthy in your congregation by not showing partiality to one versus the other. Uh, taming the tongue, a lot of discussion about how powerful the tongue is and how much destruction it can bring about and how much healing it can bring about. Warnings about worldliness and being a friend of God rather than being influenced by the culture the importance of humility and patience and suffering, and meeting the needs of widows and orphans. He addresses the letter to the diaspora, the diaspora, the 12 tribes that have been scattered. Now what the commentaries say is most likely these are Jewish congregations that have been scattered after the persecution of the Jerusalem church. Tim talked about this when he was going through Acts a few months ago, how Jewish believers went to uh, the northern areas uh, above Jerusalem and to other parts of the earth. And there also there were Jews that never returned after the Babylonian captivity. So it was meant to be uh, an encouragement to Jewish Christian congregations. Uh, there's a strongly Jewish tone to the letter. In the second chapter it says when you gather together as believers and that word that's used there for gathering together is synagogue. So another indication that it's probably a, you know, very strongly a Jewish congregation. The book of James talks about how we handle trouble and how, as an indication of our faith, when trouble comes into our life and speaks to the reality of our faith or the lack of it. Therefore, the purpose of James, which is to give us tests of living faith, the first thing he wants to talk about is the test of trials, where trials will reveal whether your faith is living or dead, whether it's genuine faith or weak faith. It's a very natural starting point for the simple reason that everybody who lives in this world will go through trials. We are, fall, we are fallen creatures, we, we are sinful creatures, and every day there is large trials and small trials. Um, my wife has a sense of humor. Yesterday she went to the women's meeting and went out to the car to leave and the battery was dead. And <coughs> she called me and I came home and, 
And I was kind of frustrated because that was not my plan for the afternoon to come and jump the car. And thankfully it all worked out, but my wife looked at me and said, count it all joy, dear. <laughs> so I was humbled. I was humbled. Job says in chapter 5, verse 7, man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Have you ever thrown a, a new piece of kindling into a, a, a fire, a, a campfire? You see that, thousands of sparks going up. Job, Job relates that. That's like what troubles are in our life. In fact, in Job 14.1, he says, A man is born of woman a few days and full of trouble. Now, James is pointing out to us that if your Christianity is genuine, trouble and trials will be part of our normal experience. If my faith that God is only good when I'm doing well, then what good is my faith? Now, notice in verse 2 for a moment, as we kind of think of this concept, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The Greek word there is poiklos, P-O-I-K-L-O-S, and what it uh, in the Greek, the, the translation of that word means many colored, variegated, varied. Um, the commentaries say this is not to emphasize the number but the diversity of troubles that we will face. It isn't the idea that we're going to have many troubles, that's true. It's the idea that we're going to have all kinds of them, multiple. Multicolored was the original idea that they come in all shades, sizes, varieties, all kinds of trouble coming from our family, coming from our relatives, coming from our work situations coming from the many areas of disappointment that we face in our life. You know, I think about, it's so good, the Bible says um, in Proverbs that it's better at the end to know the end from the beginning. We think about Joseph. Imagine Joseph, what he was thinking when his brothers sold him and at first put him down a hole, you know, a, a hole uh, into a cistern. Could he have ever imagined that he would be the head of Pharaoh's household within a few years? But we're in the midst of trials. They're hard. They're hard to understand. In Psalm 22:11, David says, Be not far from me, crying out to God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near me. In Isaiah 8:22, God speaks through Isaiah of his judgment of the world that he left men to look unto the earth and find only trouble. And no doubt you can remember in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon says, Therefore I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And then in verse 23, for all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart takes not rest in the night. It's as if Solomon is saying, trouble, trouble, vanity, vanity. Day and night, life seems nothing but trouble and trouble alone. And frankly, even for us, even for those who are the children of God, there is a constant kind of sense of facing certain troubles. We do everything we can protect ourselves to get the perfect peace and comfort in our life, but inevitably troubles do come along. We know that our Lord was not able to avoid trouble. We see this through the Gospels again and again, the Pharisees and Sadducees confronting him, the, the weight of the Roman world coming down upon him. He says in the Gospel, you have been me with me in my troubles to his disciples. He also says it's normal in the world for you to have tribulation, but, be not, but I have overcome the world. We expect trouble. Jesus groaned in his spirit at John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then we find in Hebrews 5, 8. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. It even tells us that he kept his heart focused on the reason he had come to live a sinless life for you and for me and to die for the sins of his people. He knew, that it was, he knew what it was to have a troubled spirit and through his life saw that trouble. Now notice the various trials. James tells us there will be various trials. The world is very, f this is another Greek word that is very familiar to students with the scripture. It's the Greek word paramos. 
In some places, it's translated as temptation, but in most places as trials. And it basically has, once again, the idea of trouble, something that breaks the tranquility of our life, that breaks the pattern of peace and comfort and joy and happiness. We really don't know what's going on among the scattered Jews that he would have identified this, what the particular problem was that he was addressing. Because the general nature of life for them was that there were trials. Imagine you are in the church in Jerusalem and suddenly the full hand of um, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities come down and you find that you can no longer worship and you're scattered far away. So he, he fully, James fully shows his heart for his scattered people. And since he calls them to various trials, multicolored trials, varied trials, he's no doubt assuming that they come in all kinds of forms and he writes this letter as an encouragement to them. The Bible scholar Dan McCarthy, one of the uh, commentaries I use, stated this way, Trials speak of the various pressures believers experience that threaten their well-being, which very well may cause believers to doubt the sovereignty of God. James encourages his hearers to think differently. They might be inclined to think, knowing that when faith is tested, it is proven genuine by the test and becomes pure and stronger as a result. When we are in the midst of troubles, though, that is hard often to see. And we think about situations that we've seen recently. We think of things like our dear brother Steve, who's gone on now a year uh, with this autoimmune situation. But what is so good is the chance to be able to, as God's people, to draw alongside those that are in pain and to comfort them. We will um, talk some more about that in a minute. The Greek scholars, Moulton and Milligan, um, who have a very profound lexicon of the Greek language, say that this word uh, always conveys the idea of a testing. It's a very, word world and very rare word seen in, in secular Greek, but very common in, biblical, in the biblical Greek, because the testing of faith is such an important part of spiritual life. In fact, the verb form of paramos is peres, P-E-I-R-A-Z, means to put someone to a test. So it's the idea then of a testing, whether it results in good things or bad things, the issue here is the test. Every trouble that comes into our life, every trial, maybe a small one or a large one, becomes a test of our faith. So trials then test our faith to see what is the strength of them. What do you do through a trial will reveal whether you really believe God and are genuinely saved and will reveal how strong that faith really is. The kind of metaphor that a lot of the, the um, commentaries use consistently is the idea of gold. You know, we, we see gold when they put it in a furnace to to burn away the dross so the, the gold will be in the purest, the purest form. It's the idea that suffering, you know, burns away. It puts us through a test and, and strengthens our faith. Another quote that Dr. Tim Keller put about suffering is that suffering can refine us rather than destroy us because God himself is walking with us in the fire. We are not walking alone. The Apostle Paul, we know, wasn't immune to any, any kind of trouble. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says... They are ministers of Christ. Why, I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths often. Of the Jews, five times received 40 stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day. I've been in the deep. In journeys often in perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils by mine own countrymen. In perils by the heathen. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness and watchings, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings and cold and darkness. Beside these things that are without, 
that which come upon me daily, the care of all the churches. And this is the man that God had chosen to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. And listen, just that, that list of things that he went through. And yet his faith never wavered. In fact, later on he would say, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Brothers and sisters, can we hold on to that? That no matter what we're going through, that there is a goal we are looking towards. Um, uh, resolution, a, a sense of the perfect peace that only Christ can provide. Rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, Peter the Apostle says, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though something strange, strange thing happened to you. Once again, part of daily life. One of the things that I'm faced with seeing pain in others is the desire to do a quick remedy. You know, you, when you, someone is hurting, you want to come alongside them. And all too often in my life, looking back, I found that, you know, I've said too many words. When people are in pain sometimes, just what they need is for us to come alongside them and be silent. You know, God chastised Job's counselors uh, through their counsel of him. But the one thing they did was when they first came to Job and they saw the condition he was in, it says they sat with him silently for seven days. They sat with him silently and grieved along with him. Uh, I just finished my, by God's grace, my 36th year of employment and retired on March 31st. But when Terry and I first started work, it was on March 1st, 1985. Seems like two seconds ago. And uh, we were teaching parents, which is um, a job where we had the, the charge of six very emotionally disturbed boys. And um, I'm amazed now as I look at my cane and hobble along that back in those days, I was always on the floor wrestling with these kids because they would get you know, upset and they taught us ways to be able to calm them down and hold them and so forth. We had moments of great joy in that home. I remember one time um, we had, in the population usually was half African-American boys and half Caucasian boys. And one night Terry served the boys a teriyaki chicken. One of the little African-American boys heard teriyaki and of course the whole table erupted in laughter. <laughs> it took us a while to, to calm them down. We also saw the sadness. One of our boys on Mother's Day had been apart from his family for about six months. He called the motel his mother was staying at down by the stratosphere only to hear from the uh, manager of the um, motel that his mother had left without any forwarding contact. To see the crushing of that child's face, heart, great heartache. But what was the best thing of that is the next door neighbor we had. Jim Keller was um, our teaching parent neighbor next door. The, the building was set up in such a way that if they heard something going on, we had a common passageway so they'd come over and help us and we could go over and help them. And Jim became my Jonathan. You know, it talks about in the Old Testament how David and Jonathan, their souls were knit together. I fell in love with, Jay, with Jim for the, from the first. We just became close, close brothers. And um, he would come over after the kids were in bed at night and we'd kind of process the day and talk about the kids. Sometimes Terry was there and sometimes not. And one time he shared that in his college years he was kind of a dumb North Dakota kid and he got a job spotting airplanes for the crop dusting. And he said either I didn't pay attention when they were training me or I was just too stupid to think about it. But the very first day he takes the flag, he lines up the plane and he said my job was to run the other way but instead I stood there and he was doused with the pesticides. 
And he said, you know, I often wonder about that because I had to spend the rest of the day, it was the first part of the day, and I spent the rest of the day drenched in those clothes, you know, walking around absolutely drenched in pesticides. About a year later, he came over and confided that he felt a lump under his arm. And um, he went to the doctor and it was diagnosed as Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I, we, I remember praying with him fervently. He held on to the verse, Psalm 144, verses 5 to 7. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they may smoke. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from my many waters. Through a series of circumstances, he took a different job back in Minneapolis or Minnesota so that he could be closer to family. And he and his wife and his five-year-old daughter and his college-age son moved back to Minnesota. And Jim lived five years. The last time I went back to see him, I was shocked because he had lost, you know, obviously all his hair from the chemo and he was very frail looking and he'd always been a very strong man. Um, and I remember going uh, and just sitting there and just trying to comfort him and being quiet that time, knowing that that's what he needed. Um, a few months later, about actually not very long later, about 90 days later after my last visit, he died. And I went back to the funeral in that small Minnesota, Minnesota town of Fergus Falls, if you've ever driven through Minnesota. And it was the time of fall, glorious colors and, and uh, light leaves turning you know, crimson and gold. And uh, the sermon really touched my heart because the, the pastor talked about the hope of resurrection, that this was not the last time we would see Jim, but we had hope of knowing that we would see him in the resurrection. He, his wife I talked with, she was sad, but she wasn't despairing because she knew that there was an ultimate reunion to take place. So in times like that, I encourage you, come alongside those that are hurting. Remember that when they're in trials, sometimes they just need that, that, that sense of your presence. You don't need to have a word. You don't need to have the, the right wisdom just to be there for them. James' purpose now is to test the strength of our faith and James tells us that when we go through a trial you really ought to look carefully at that trial and examine it in light of how you react and what it says about your understanding. James then tells us to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. When I'm facing life's trials, joy is not the first word that comes to my mind. Um, I remember when Terry and I were first married, we had a class of five-year-olds at the church we were attending and it kind of humbles me now to realize that those kids are probably now in their mid-40s. Uh, but uh, we used to sing a song with them about joy. And the joy came from J, focusing on Jesus first, O, others second, and Y, you last. Uh, we see this also in Philippians 2 where Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When others are in the midst of trials, we come to their aid and love. Paul reminds us in the opening of 2 Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly also in his comfort. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. We draw alongside and comfort others because God has also comforted us. The word then James uses for the encounter, it says when you encounter various trials, is the word peripaceti. Uh, really, uh, what that word means is to fall into. 
We see this word used in Luke 10 where it talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan and it says where a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. When unexpected trials come, we understand that sense of falling into the unexpected. You go to the doctor for your regular checkup and you find out that there's something very serious, not what you were expecting, not what you were hoping to hear. You report to work only to find out that your position has suddenly been uh, closed out and there's no work to go back to on Monday morning. For many of us, March 13, 2020 was one of those moments of falling into when we saw the governor say, everything's shutting down. You know, I, I, I still, I, I wish I'd taken a videotape of driving down the strip in early April and not seeing a car or taxi cab. It was like one of those post-apocalyptic movies where the bomb has gone off and, you know, the strip was absolutely empty. That, that was a time of testing and we're still in that time of testing now. James then tells us to let the testing of our faith produce endurance. The word hupomonen, under, under, under trial, under, under endurance, to bear under. Now to bear under patiently, to triumphantly to endure, it doesn't mean, oh, I grip my teeth, I'm going to endure it, I'm going to get through this no matter what. I'm going to hold my breath, I'm going to suck it up, I'll endure it. It isn't that, it isn't a passive endurance, it isn't just surviving, it's striving towards a goal. We saw that that Jesus, you know, in the passage from Hebrews, running the race, looking to the goal. Um, one of the, the things that, that I so enjoy in looking at some of the films from the Olympics is the 1968 Olympics. Um, a lot of the runners that had participated in the marathon had dropped out because they didn't realize that the, the altitude of Mexico City would get to them. And so several of them dropped out because they just couldn't have the endurance. One of the runners that did not drop out was a man named Stephen Aquari. He was from Tanzania. And um, 11 miles into the marathon, he fell, dislocated his knee, and created a great gash in his leg. And the medics were there, and they, 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 they put bandages on his gas, on, on, on the large gas, and uh, gash in his leg. And everyone thought that, well, that's the end of the race for him. But no, he started to hop and hobble along. And continue the race. The winner of the race came into Mexico City Stadium at 2 hours and 20 minutes and a few seconds. Mr. Aquari came in at 3 hours, 25 minutes, hour and 5 minutes late. He was the last, obviously, the other runners had long ago been through. And the few people that were left in the, in the uh, Mexico City Stadium put up a cheer. And he hobbled around and made the last lap and came across the finish line and finished the, the, uh, the marathon. And a reporter from ABC talked to him later that day and asked him, you know, you, you had no hope of being even in contention. Why did you, why did you finish? And I, I, I love his statement. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Uh, and if you want to, it's, it's actually film on YouTube showing, showing his entry into the into the New Mexico City Stadium. But that, that always struck me. You know, I, I wasn't sent to start the race. I was sent to finish the race. We were called to endure, to stand up under trials, to finish the race. This word, hupomonen, to endure trials, is a present active indicative in the Greek, to patiently and triumphantly be the winner. As we see in Hebrews, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Endurance, that we may be made perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. You know, one of the sad things I had as a social worker, um, I encountered this a number of times. You know, we were always very careful. We were told not be sharing our faith. But there were times when people would open up and be open. And I'd heard this a number of times when people said, I'd ask them, you know, do you have a church affiliation? Oh, I don't go to church anymore. And usually what would follow is, I lost my wife, I lost my kids, something terrible had happened, and I didn't see the point anymore. You know, that is not a living faith. And my heart goes out for those folks. Um, we are called to persevere, to persevere no matter what comes our way. Um, we love him, the scriptures tell us, because he first loved us. So we hold on to that. To sum this idea, let me suggest to you that the purpose of testing has two main purposes. First, to expose the quality of our faith. Testing, as I've been saying, is designed to reveal what kind of faith we have. Um, and when tests and troubles come, when there's a death or when there's loneliness or loss or problems, whatever that may be, can you see that through that, God is testing the validity of our faith. He is making us approved. Secondly, he is putting you through a fire as a worthy. You might come out with a dross burned off and the true faith shining bright. I saw an interesting quote by a, a study that Terry is reading by an author named John Bloom. Um, talks about how the California wines uh, through the mid-coast, you know, by, by San Luis Obispo and that area, mid-California mid coast, come up with great yielding wines with very sweet flavor. But he says that really the, great, the greatest wines come from low-yielding low yielding vineyards where the vines are stressed. They may not produce as much, but the wine itself is very complex, and, and the vines have to work harder to produce that fruit. They fewer fewer uh, grapes result, but they're more concentrated and more flavorful. And he relates this as a parable for how God produces rich, intense faith in his children. You know, we'd, we'd rather have that vine that has the easy life, but God calls us to that, that struggling vine that sometimes is hard to live through, but is making us, is shaping us into the person that Christ calls us to be. Jesus the vine has planted us in a unique vineyard with uniquely stressful conditions because he intends for you and me pr to produce the best wine. Now, we are good Calvinists here. If you're visiting for the first day and you've never been to a Reformed church, you know, we have an acronym, TULIP, which kind of summarizes the Reformed faith. And the P of that TULIP is perseverance. We talk about the perseverance in the saints. In other words, we believe that the saints will never abandon their faith. They will always persevere, believe in God through every trial. That's the perseverance. In other words, we won't believe for a little while and then bail out when trouble comes along. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says this, They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be internally saved. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon our own free will, but on the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, and of the seed of God within him. Nevertheless, they may, through temptations of Satan and the world, the prevalence of corruption may, remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for their, a time, a time, continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, and have their hearts hardened, their conscience wounded, and scandalize others, but ultimately come back to the Lord. You know, we see in the Westminster Confession that a Christian can get in a whole lot of stress, a whole lot of trouble, but never ultimately lose their faith because he will, they will persevere. 
Trials then prove genuine faith. I uh, was thinking about the high priestly prayer that Jesus gives in John 17, and it's an encouragement to us because the night before he died, he was praying for us. He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. The Lord knows that we face trials. The Lord knows that we face troubles, but he is there, and he's praying for us. The PCA website recently had this statement. In a fallen world, trials and tragedy will come into every life, but there is no better, safer, or more satisfying path for God's eternal blessings and earthly joys than the one he prepares for us. And remember that he walks with us. Um, if you get a chance on RefNet or Ligonier.com, there's just a plethora of great videos uh, by wonderful Reformed teachers. And one of them recently I watched was by Dr. Derek Thomas. And he told the story about being a young pastor in Belfast, Ireland. He was called to the hospital of a woman who had been told there were significant birth problems with the fetus. And when the baby was born, uh, it was proven there were several brain anomalies and this child would never live a normal life. The ba baby would never grow up to be a functional adult. He watched the husband leave the room. The husband went home, packed up his bags and left. And never once gave a, a, a cent of um, support to his wife. Um, as a pastor, he would go periodically and he'd visit with her. He may, would come to her house and he said she would always have tea and biscuits or as he says, you Americans, cookies, tea and cookies ready for them. And they would sit down. And this woman would always start by saying, I'm going to ask you a question, Pastor, and I know that your answer is going to be, I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And her question was, why? You know, we know what's implicit in that why. Why did this happen? Why did this man walk away? Why did this child, why was this born? Why was I given the, the trial of this child that will never, never know fullness of life? And uh, he would smile and say, you know what I'm going to answer? I don't know. But Derek Thomas knew that God knows. He knows, and we rest that for his reasons, he doesn't make clear to us the why. But he knows. Our Lord knows. It's only important that he understands that we trust him, even in the most horrible and painful situation, even in the most dark place in the silence. Do we trust him in this situation? Do we see that we're in his hands and that he has you in his hands? We see this in James. We also see it, in, as I said earlier, in the book of Job. Calvin began a year-long exposition of the book of Job in February of 1554, and he ended his sermon by saying, it's a great thing to be subject to the majesty of God. Now, if you're visiting today but have never understood the gospel, we encourage you that you talk to an elder. Understand that you are a sinner, and if you look at the people around you, you're surrounded by sinners, but those are sinners that have come to Christ. And the Bible tells us we will all make an account before the Lord. Those that have faith in Christ, taking on their sin at the cross and in his accomplished work, will stand before him in Christ's righteousness. And those that don't come to Christ will stand in the penalty of their sin, which is a very, very awesome and, and scary proposition. It says, it's an, you know, it's an incredibly um, scary thing to fall into the hands of the eternal God. So if you've never come to Christ and you'd like to talk about the gospel, please come and see one of the elders today. We'd love to talk to you.
For those that haven't come to Christ, we encourage you. We know that life has many trials and times of struggle, moments of great darkness and uncertainty. Uh, certainly, you know, we've seen it this week, all the things that have happened in the course of this week since last Sunday. But brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you face various trials because you have a Savior who loves you more than you can imagine. And at Calvary, went through the ultimate trial for you. As trials come, and may we all run that race with endurance, looking at Jesus who ran the race for us so that we might have the joy of eternity with him. Let us pray. Father God, it's easy to talk, to throw off words about trials and tribulations, and yet when we're in the midst of them, they can sometimes be so dark. Father, we ask for those that are going through those kind of things right now that you would give them comfort, help them to sense your presence and to know your love and your care, to know that as the dross is burned off, as they go through the trial and the fire, that you are never far, you are there. Father, we pray that this time of your word would help us to be encouraged this week as we go out, as we will face trials. And we thank you, Father, for the encouragement that James has given us this morning. Now, as we come to you, we ask that you would help us to live a life that is pleasing in your sight. And we ask all these things in Christ's name.